0: Now, if you were reading a moment ago with me from 1 Corinthians 15, I do encourage you to open your Bibles again, and this time at the end of that great chapter, verse 58. If you'd rather simply listen, that's okay, but uh, I'd like you to see it there so that you can follow it and perhaps later today go back to it in your own Bible. Verse 58, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not ever in vain. If later today or sometime in the week someone says, you were at Charlotte Chapel on Sunday, what did the fellow preach on? I hope you'll remember. You can tell them this. He said, it's hard being a Christian, but it's worth it. It's hard constantly saying your prayers, but it's worth it. It's hard to be a witness and really shine as a light in the increasing darkness in our Western world, but it's worth it. The reason I say these things is not experience and observation, but rather the Word of God itself. Because when Paul was inspired to write the words we read, and he comes to the end of what we call chapter 15, he wrote it as one great letter. He chose a word in which he said, because you know that you're labour in the Lord. The Greek word kopos means work that makes you tired. So if you're tired doing God's work, and you feel pressure doing what God has called you to do, that probably means you're in the right place. But it's worth it. And that's why Paul also said, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord in the sentence or the phrase before. Some of you, I imagine, many of you here had piano lessons as children. Remember the bits, the the little dots under the notes and the teacher said, at least my teacher said, let your fingers be like, like prancing ponies on the notes. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And when Paul wrote those words, he wasn't writing to his fellow apostles, those specially chosen men in the first century. He wasn't writing to a Bible school somewhere in the Middle East. He was writing to a church that he had already described as divided, immature, irresponsible. A church that he described as a baby church. And he said, hey you guys, get your act together and always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And that's my message to you today, that we, if we love Jesus here in Edinburgh, wherever you come from, if you love Jesus Christ, you're called upon always to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Now when your pastor Peter and I were at college, it seems a lifetime ago, we were taught, well were we really, but it was sort of hinted that all good sermons had three points. I remember the Reverend George Duncan, under whose ministry we enjoyed sitting in the Tron Church in Glasgow, coming to give a homiletics class, homiletics, the art of preaching. And someone said, Mr. Duncan, why do your sermons always have three points? And why are they always alliterated? And George stood for a minute, he said, let me give you three reasons. Well, I've got three points this morning. I'm sorry I haven't flagged them up on the overhead or rather on uh, PowerPoint, but I think you'll remember them. First of all, the imperative, the command to mission, the imperative to mission, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You see, Paul didn't just say always give yourselves fully. He said, therefore, always give yourselves fully to this work. Now, you know that if the word therefore appears in the Bible, you should always ask, what is it there for? And there are two reasons why there is this call, this imperative to mission, the task of sharing the good news of the Christian message. The first reason we've read, this is the gospel, verse 3, we sang about it and you've been singing well this morning. This is what I received, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, was raised, according to the Old Testament, and appeared. Now, that's the gospel. Christ died, a fact of history. No self-respecting historian today would deny the existence and the death of Jesus Christ. A fact of history. For our sins, the reason that he died, that he might bring salvation to mankind, according to the scriptures, the explanation of how this was worked out in God's plan. Now, this is the gospel. In the world of missiology today, there's a great debate going on as to what really is the gospel. What is the Christian message? And uh, I was involved in a discussion with some uh, well-known names, and they were saying, well, it's actually from Genesis to Revelation. That's the gospel. It's about ecology and treating the earth properly. It's about justice and giving justice to those who have been denied their human rights. I would say these things flow from the gospel. Here is the gospel in its essence. Christ died for our sins and rose. And that makes our message unique. That was one of the reasons I shared with all of us earlier, the five points of Islam. You see, these dear people, they will go and their great desire is just to touch the Kaaba, the great building where Muhammad's bones lie. Now my purpose is not to denigrate any world religion. But I want to tell you with confidence this morning that Jesus Christ is alive. He's not dead. He is not here as the message of Easter, as the angel said to those who came to look. He is risen. Islam needs to hear that. So does Buddhism. Gautama Sathatha, the Buddha, some of you come from the Orient. You will know this. That on his deathbed, he said, Ah, don't weep for me, my disciples. I've got the Tathagata, the expounder of truth. Seek the Dharma, the truth itself. Jesus said, Hey, listen, I am the truth. I'm the way. I'm the life. And that uniqueness places upon us a huge responsibility to share this worldwide message for everyone. That's the worst reason Paul says, therefore always give yourselves fully to the Lord's work. There's a second, maybe more hidden reason. Back in chapter 1 of this great letter, he he begins an idea which emerges through the letter. In verse 1, or rather verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul says, You are actually in fellowship with Jesus Christ, God's Son. Now, after the service this morning, you'll be invited to stay for fellowship. And what we mean by that is, come and drink a cup of coffee and let's talk. Now, and I suppose that is fellowship in a way. But the great Greek word koinonia meant much more than drinking tea and coffee, valuable as that is. Koinonia means engaging in such a way that what is important to you becomes vital to me and what is essential to me becomes important to you. That's fellowship. We are in fellowship with Jesus Christ. What is important to him? I live in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. The Lord took me kicking and screaming from pastoral ministry six years ago and thrust me into this present task. And I'd like to share this evening what that meant, because it may help others. The struggles I had, I did not come willingly to the task I do now. But we live in Tunbridge Wells, for better or worse, where our British office is, and I had the privilege of having my hair cut by a man who was until recently the fastest barber in the world. Now, when I went to him, I asked him if he could do something, and he looked at me, he's quite blunt as Daniel, and he said, do you know that expression, you can't make a silk purse out of, and he stopped. Anyway, Denny cuts my hair, and if you have an old Guinness Book of Records, you check it out, he is there as the fastest barber. But I've tried to share my faith with the barber. He's so fast, there's no chance. That is, until England began to progress through the World Cup in 2002. Now I have to say, here in Scotland, I'm very sorry that you lot, well not you in particular, but the Scots bet was at 7 million on England not progressing Oh dear, oh dear. Anyway, I was delighted in Royal Tunbridge Wells to see my rather middle-class neighbours with little England flags out of their windows. And uh, the sophisticated people getting a bit more relaxed, bless them. But I went for a haircut. And I discovered that the door of Denny's shop was covered in an England flag. You had to lift it up to get in. And I discovered that the two benches where no one i have ever seen sitting on were full. And he was talking, talking and engaging with every man in his chair about the form of David, what's his name? (laughs) It was David Beckham's form, it was how much they had spent on England winning, I couldn't believe it. So I thought when I get into the chair I'm going to change the subject. Not that I didn't rejoice with my fellow Englishmen uh, in their progress. But when I sat down I thought we'll change, so the weather, that's always good isn't it? Not interested. As I said earlier, I was a banker at one stage and the stock market was going on the slide so I talked about the economy. Not interested. I was heading for South Africa and a month of preaching and I thought, surely he'll say, why do you want to go to South Africa in July, their winter, our summer? Not interested. He won. And we were back on David Beckham. As I walked out of his shop, I thought, now that I've got to know this man, I realise he has one passion. And his passion is football. And and when you get to know Denny, you you realise you cannot be in his presence for more than a few moments. You touch his passion and it comes out. What's our Lord's passion this morning? What is he, can I say it reverently, fanatical about? Mission. Mission. He didn't come as one item on his job description to redeem the world as part of a whole agenda. That was his whole purpose. That's why he came. That is his passion. And friends, if you and I are really in fellowship with him, then his passion becomes our passion. Indeed, I often begin a weekend of services in churches by saying, do you want to be a person like Jesus? And evangelical congregations look at me as if they say, what a stupid question. And I say this, I cannot say, we cannot say with integrity that we are people like Jesus unless we have a passion for mission. And for these two reasons, the fact that Paul says you are called into fellowship with his dear son, the fact that he now affirms in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is a fact, see, experience the living Christ, therefore he says the divine imperative to mission Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now what does that mean? I'm still on point one, the imperative to mission. What does that mean in practice? This is fine for the pulpit on Sunday, but what about day by day? Well, I want to suggest a number of things to you. I think first of all it's about lifestyle. We are called to live a Christian life. And the reason is that God will be glorified, but the reason ultimately is that the world might see Jesus in us lifestyle. I was in the city of Amman uh, at the end of last year and uh, I was speaking with one of the pastors with whom we work, Nico's distinctive is that we work with the churches in the Middle East, we serve them. And uh, Pastor Afifalasa whose picture I showed last night, a fearless and godly man, he told me the story of a, a Muslim woman who at the end of last summer came to faith. He said to her, now be very careful as you go home Sometimes to go home to a Muslim community and immediately share your faith can mean the death sentence. And so she waited some weeks and then she said to her husband, I am a Christian believer. The man was shocked. He was furious. He rushed out of his home. He went to the family. He gathered them together and they talked. He came back late that night and said nothing. In the weeks that followed to the end of the last year, uh, last year, he was sullen. He was discontent. He was unhappy. And one night he came home having eaten his meal. He sat with his wife and with tears running down his cheeks he said, my dear I have to tell you something. He said, the night you told me you had become a Christian I went from this home I gathered the family together together we pronounced the death sentence. You have renounced Islam. You have denied your religion. You have turned your back on our family. That's the way they look at it. And therefore, my brother said, You, you, her husband, you must kill her. He said, I came home that night to kill you. But he said, You looked at me so radiantly. He said, In the weeks that have followed, I've come home every night tonight. I'll kill her. But he said, You've prepared a beautiful meal for me. He said, As the tears ran down his cheeks, he said, It seems in these last weeks you've changed. You've become more gentle, you've become more patient. You've become more loving. He said, I think you even look more beautiful. He said, I can't kill you. I don't like what you've done. I don't like your Christian faith. But I've seen a change in you. And as a result, I will protect you. Peter said, go back to the West John and ask prayer for that woman. He couldn't give me her name. It may be that today they are alive. I do not know. But what a challenge. I've seen the change. It saved her life and it bore a witness to her husband. Folks, I wonder as we live our Christian lives day by day if people see a change, Jesus, in us. It's about lifestyle. And if it doesn't start there, it won't start anywhere. It's about opportunities. There are many people, I'm sure, in Edinburgh as there are in Egypt, as in Lebanon and Syria and Saudi Arabia, where people are eager to know more. I have a colleague who's an English teacher in one of our schools in Lebanon. Mikko has been privileged to found some of the top schools in Lebanon. And today we've handed them over to the national leadership. We work with them. And uh, people come from the West and teach in those schools. And one lovely Kiwi lass was on holiday down in Damascus, sorry, further south-east. And uh, she was travelling in a taxi. It's the cheapest and simplest way to travel. A very good Arabist. The taxi driver, like all taxi drivers I suppose, was very friendly. Why are you in my country? Oh, she said, I'm here to teach English. And she could have dropped it there, but she said, but I'm here to tell people about Jesus. Now she could have been thrown out of the taxi at that point. But to her surprise, the man said, you're a Christian. Yes, she said, I am. Ah, he said, I was a taxi driver in Amman, for the south again, in Jordan, and he said I discovered a hospital there, and if you got sick, they gave you a Bible. And I prayed to Allah that I would get sick, so that I could get a Bible. Isn't that lovely? Please God, don't make me so sick I die, just sick enough to go to the hospital to get a Bible. My colleague said, listen here, you don't need to go to the hospital. I will give you one. And she took her own Bible and gave it to him. And maybe the fellow wanted to go to heaven right there and then because in the midst of Damascus traffic, he took his hands off the field and kissed the book. I wonder how many people in this great city of yours are just waiting for someone to come and introduce Jesus. It's about lifestyle. It's about opportunities, taking them, grasping them with both hands. It's about prayer. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Prayer is so vital for the task of mission. We have missionaries spread out in the Middle East working with the church in all kinds of areas. We need people to pray for them and people to pray them out there. Last night it was a joy to have Esther Moisey, uh, an English class, who is here in Stockholm this weekend. I think she's in another church this morning. But uh, she is an occupational therapist and has done a strategic work in helping many children in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq. I was privileged to preach at Esther's uh, commissioning, or valedictory as we used to call it, in the parish church uh, in Mansfield in Nottinghamshire, St. John's Church. And Esther gave her a little bit about how God had led her And in the middle of her testimony, she stopped and she said, Do you see that woman down there? She's dangerous. Watch her. Interesting thing to say in the middle of a sermon or a service. I I knew what she meant. Annie McAllister, as a teacher in North London, didn't have the joy of her own children, didn't marry, decided to invest in other people's kids. And she prayed for Esther as a little girl in Sunday school. Prayed her through the Sunday school. Prayed her through school into secondary education. Prayed her into faith in Christ. Prayed her into baptism. Prayed her to university and her chosen subject. Prayed her up to northern Iraq. At the end of the service, I said to Esther or, or to Irene, I said, that's interesting. Have you got a hit list? Oh, she said, I have. Don't worry, I have. Have you got a hit list? A prayer list? And you pray for these people? And sometimes you wonder if it's worth it. Listen, I'm going to show you this morning from the word of God that your labor is not in vain. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Your prayers, the opportunities we take, the lifestyle we're called to live. It may be about giving. So much, as our uh, chairman this morning said, is about giving to the work of God. And just as he could not function in ICC without your support, so much of the task of mission requires God's people to give. I'm very grateful for my background in the Brethren churches. Some things I wish I hadn't learned, but many that I do. And one thing I have learned is to trust God. I began my ministry here in Scotland as an evangelist, living by faith. And I'm glad that there were people praying for us and helping us to learn that you can trust God. So when I came to this task, I said, Lord, please, I don't want to ask for money. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm going to ask for prayer for resources. I think there's a difference. You see, if people pray having been informed and God says no, then we've got it right. If I just work on the emotional heartstrings of people, then they may give, but it may be wrong. It's better that we pray. And then if it's God's will, the thing will take place. So I ask you to pray about something now. In the Middle East today, there is a great opportunity for video and film production. We're privileged to work with a a man who has been described by some as the Spielberg of the Middle East, Anis Sakia. Anis loves to meet you in the Hilton in Cairo, and I'm prepared to suffer for the gospel a bit. And so it's a privilege to meet him, as Margaret and I did last year, and began to lay plans for another film like the one we showed last night The Prodigal, the story Jesus told. That video has been shown all over the Middle East. Sat7 News it regularly. We know that in Syria, in some towns, it has literally gone from house to house, street to street, through the whole community, explaining the story of the Father's love. We'd like to repeat that exercise, but it'll be a huge budget. We need people to stand with us in prayer that somehow God will lead us to see, is this right? And if it is right, that we'll do it. So that again, the message of the Gospel will beam From satellites, onto television, sometimes in national networks, right across the Middle East. As I said last night, there are more video players in the Middle East per capita than any other part of the world. It's about giving. It's about going. God may send you to the Far East, or just across the street here in Edinburgh. But let me say, in the Middle East today, there are huge opportunities for teachers, for young people to come and spend a gap year in education, For doctors, for nurses, for people with IT skills, for engineers, for people with management abilities and people who just have a heart of love. The Middle East church is crying out and saying, come, come and help us and stand with us. The divine imperative, the imperative to mission. But let's move quickly. The second thing that Paul says here is he identifies hindrances to mission. The imperative to mission, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Jesus lives, you're in fellowship with him, but the Bible is realistic. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Now, the New Testament writers often followed the pattern of the rabbis, or the ribbies as they call themselves today, which was they taught by rote. They said one thing and then said it again in a slightly different way. And some scholars believe that's what Paul is doing here. Stand firm. I'll say it again. Let nothing move you, I wonder. I like to think that in fact Paul was saying stand firm as he looked within his own heart and asked them to look within their own hearts and lives. And then when he said let nothing move you, he was looking at external forces that will hinder us. Stand firm. It's so encouraging, is it not, to be part of a lively church like this. My wife and I have the privilege of being in so many different churches in the countries I've mentioned. I often see it smells and bells one Sunday and off the wall charismatic next where they wipe the footprints off the ceiling on Monday morning. And it's lovely to meet God's people and their rich and varied forms. But I'll tell you something, it's wonderful to be part of a large, buzzing church, a church like this. But Monday's different, is it not? And sometimes you get so discouraged that even, I'm sure, the deacons and the elders and the leaders of the church here, they get discouraged. But you see, our labor is not in vain. I'm going to come to that again in a moment. That's the point of this verse. One of our workers was a surgeon, a very refined, delightful English gentleman, Dr. Paul Shepherd. Paul was called to Egypt and there he served in medicine and leadership of the mission. But then he got kicked out of Egypt when... Uh, The President, Nasser, evicted all of the Brits back in the 50s. Some of you will remember that. He moved to Eritrea in Africa. Then there was a civil war and he was kicked out of that. He moved to Ethiopia. And then he got kicked out of Ethiopia. And towards the end of his life, I remember him saying to me, John, I wonder if my labor has been in vain. But he was able to go back to Egypt. Egypt. And he met a man who will have just preached now to 4,000 people in the largest church in the whole of the Middle East, the Presbyterian Church in downtown Cairo. And Dr. Paul Shepard, a medical doctor, met with the Reverend Dr. Manisa abdul Nur And he said to him, Brother Manisa, I wonder if my labour's been in vain. And he said, oh, Paul, don't say that. He said, you know, when you came here, God gave you one or two who came to faith, but you taught us to do it. And when you taught us to do it, we are seeing things now. And this is what he's seeing. A church with 3,000 in the morning and 4,000 at night hearing the gospel. Every week, people coming to faith. The last time I was there, they said to me, come and see the recording studio. And I said, well, that's all right. In my old church, we used to have about 10 or 12 copies of my sermon, fast copied at the end of the service. And they smiled up and said, come and see this. And I went into a room that would be maybe the size of downstairs here, and they said, guess how many copies of the sermon we produce? I don't know, I haven't a clue. Five hundred. Five hundred. And many of these will be couriered to Upper Egypt, so that in some of the villages where there are pastors with no theological training, but trying to keep together a small struggling group, they'll hear Pastor Manisa's sermon, or one of his assistants at night, and they hear the word of God. Five hundred tapes. Some of them sent by post. Some of them by couriers on bikes. Some of them going by car. And going to the villages. And Dr. Paul Shepherd, that lovely Englishman, was able to spend the last days realising that there really was no reason to get discouraged. Because what we offer to God, he uses. So I say to you this morning, don't be discouraged by your inner feelings of is it worth it. And what they say about you and how you can get let down. Keep pressing on, always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. But hey folks, there are pressures outside of us. And when Paul said, Let nothing move you, he was indicating that there are things that may well move us. I mentioned a moment ago our film producer Anisatia. Anis was working in the desert with Southern Baptist Christians one of the stories of the Old Testament prophets another way of getting the gospel across to the millions of the Middle East and they were making the film and I don't know how these big cameras work but as one of the technicians looked at it suddenly he saw that it was running and as it ran it was chewing up the tape and he thought what's happening so he pressed the off button nothing happened he pressed it again still the film ran he went to the generator and pulled out the plug And to his amazement, still the film ran and was being chewed up by the minute. There was one of the Muslim technicians, the helper standing by, looked and quietly said, Demons. Demons. An email went round the world, Pray for us. We're under real, satanic oppression. We're often protected from that in the West, but it's very real in some parts of the world, maybe where some of you students come from. Ah, but listen to what Paul says. Let nothing move you. Why? Because he who is in us and he who is with us is greater than all the forces in the world around. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. The imperative to mission. And if you're a Christian this morning, that's you. The hindrance is to mission. Stand firm. Don't let any inner discouragements dissuade you. Your labour is not in vain. And don't let any external forces thwart you because Christ has the victory. But last of all the results of mission. Simple things. The imperative to mission. The hindrance is recognised. The results. Look at these last words. Because you know that your Work that makes you tired, puts demands on you, in the Lord, done in the power of God's Spirit, is never, ever in vain. And the word that Paul was guided to use by the Holy Spirit is a word from the word of artisans and commerce. Here's a carpenter, a wonderful craftsman. He's recognized for his work. And someone comes to him and says, I want you to make a cabinet for me. And uh, here's the dimensions, and here is what it should look like. And he says, I will do it with delight. This is what I'll charge. They negotiate. And he works at it night and day and produces a beautiful work of art. And the client comes to him, and he presents it. Here is my work. Isn't it beautiful? And the man looks and says, oh dear, it is beautiful, but I'm sorry. I I asked for two doors on the cabinet. You've given me but one. I asked for a series of drawers, but there are but two. Oh, my friend, it's beautiful, but, but it's in vain. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if some of us arrived at heaven's gates and the Lord said, come in, you're my child. Because of my son's death, you live eternally. My reward now, Lord. Well, I'm sorry, there are none. None? Your work was in vain. Ah, but Lord, look what I achieved. Yes, but that's not what I asked. I didn't ask you to do that or this. I didn't ask you to make a great name for yourself. I asked you to make a name for me. In vain. But, he says, we know that our labor in the Lord is not ever in vain. I I was preaching, and with this I finish, in Gorodpur in India, It was an OM youth rally and the OM leaders had come from all over India and we were having a great time and it was I think the last evening of the conference. There had been high praise for an hour or so and I was urging to preach. And then suddenly one of the OM leaders said, there's a young man here, he's just arrived from Bombay, we should hear his story. And I thought, I I want to preach, I don't want to delay I'm glad I did. I hope you will feel it's worth delaying just for a minute to hear this story. The young man stood at the rostrum. He told us how that he had been born in the great city of Mumbai, as it's today known. A precocious boy, a kind of intellectual misfit. The family sent him to the American branch of their Asian family. There he did well in school and at university, got an excellent degree. And then, on a student visa... Instead of going back to India, he became an illegal immigrant. He was always one jump ahead of the authorities. His IT skills meant that he could get a good job anywhere. And always he was moving from city to city, ahead of the police, ahead of the immigration people. He got involved in some seedy bars, eventually was introduced to the gay scene, and gradually he began to scrape the barrel of life. Men used him, abused him and spat him out. And one day, utterly dejected, he was walking through the marketplace in the city of Philadelphia. And an American Christian was standing there distributing tracts. And forgive me, any of you who come from the States, we Scots kind of cringe at this, but it worked. He looked at the man, he said, Hi, Jesus loves you. Have a nice day. The young man took that tract And he walked on and he thought, Jesus loves me? Who who is this Jesus? Why should he love me? Nobody loves me. My family in India, they don't love me. My family in America don't love me. The men that I sleep with, they say they love me, but they just use me. Nobody loves me. Why should Jesus love me? He went looking for a building like the picture on the tract, a building with a steeple. And he found a church. They were cleaning it for Sunday. They filled him up with coffee and cookies and with the gospel. By five o'clock that evening that young man's life was put right with God. By later that evening it was put right with the immigration authorities, and they said, We'll not persecute if you're out within so many hours. He arrived back in Bombay, his family didn't want to know him, and someone said, Send them up to Gorakhpur. they'll help him up there. I'm so glad I heard that story. Today that man is a pastor of a church in Hyderabad in central India, married with a family, and all because an American Christian was prepared on a Saturday morning to say, hey, Jesus loves you. Have a nice day. You could do that. I could do that. Brothers and sisters, because Christ lives, because we are in fellowship with Him. We are called always to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, not to be discouraged, not to give up, because we know that our labour in the Lord, even a tract given, is never in vain. Let's respond to that by singing our final hymn, Here I Am. Wholly available. It's too h-